Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst, and this is Biological Poker, the first season of Ear Movies. I think I was waiting at some traffic lights one day when the inspiration for this story arrived. I really hate traffic lights and how much of my life has been wasted waiting for them to turn green. I began thinking about what it would be like if you didn't have much time left and you were stuck there. What would you do? Would you keep waiting or, if the coast was clear, would you put your foot down? And after that, what? And in that magic way, the story arrived. I can't remember where I met Anne Burbrook, who is about to read the story for you. We've worked on quite a few things together over the years. We shot a film called The Changeling a long time ago, which, for weird reasons, was never released. She was just so good. I remember after one particularly emotional scene, the entire crew were in tears, and she apologised for upsetting them. She graduated from NIDA, did some TV and movies, then backed away from the industry for reasons of her own. I've been incredibly blessed that whenever I ask her to work with me, she says yes, and we've had so much fun making films together. She's just amazing. She nailed reading this story, and I love her interpretation of it. I hope you do too. poker. Katie had never felt so free, which she thought was weird given that she'd been diagnosed with terminal get-your-affairs-in-order cancer just 10 minutes earlier. But it was a brilliant day. The sky was clear all the way to the mountains, and she'd just run a red light, not in a dangerous way. She'd been sitting there for a while, waiting. There was no cross-traffic, and she'd just gone stuff it and zoomed across the intersection. They could find her. She didn't care. She wouldn't be around long enough to pay. She didn't need to worry about any of these minor restrictions anymore. That's when the feeling of freedom hit. For this short window of time, she'd park where she wanted, speed everywhere, run red lights, whatever the hell she felt like. If she only had a limited amount of time left, why waste it waiting for the bloody traffic lights to change? She wouldn't be dangerous. She didn't want to hurt anyone or be locked up. But they could find her every day for the rest of her life and it just wouldn't matter. She called work and told them that she wouldn't be in for a few days. She knew Angie wouldn't be happy about it, but she'd be even more pissed off when she found out that she'd soon be losing Katie forever. She was on the distributor, doing 130 weaving in and out of the traffic. She found herself smiling when she heard the siren behind her. Uh, do you know how fast you are going? The cop asked. He was in a different world to her. Uh, Concerned about public safety had to meet his quota of fines mentality. She was going to be dead soon and he'd still be on patrol. I wasn't looking at the speedo, she told him, and then for effect added, whoops. Is there a reason you were more than 40 kilometres an hour over the limit? She realised that she now possessed something that not many other people had. Something that had every chance of assisting her current situation. She decided to play the death card. I've, um, I, I've just found out I'm dying, she told him. I, I don't have long to live. He went to say something, 
presumably his usual comeback for the millions of excuses he'd been given when police school had taught him that no excuse was ever valid. But maybe this one was. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so was I. I, I'm still going to have to give you a ticket. Does not compute, she thought. He took her license and returned to his car while he completed the paperwork. She sat in the sun, hating being still when she had so little time left to move. He returned after a few minutes. Um, I've, I've decided to let you off. You have a perfect driving record. Yes, I, I usually never do anything like this, she said sweetly. She looked at him. He stared back for a moment and then returned her license. Well, uh, good luck, he said. I'll need it, she told him. She returned to her unit and was surprised to find that it had somehow changed colour while she'd been out. Not in reality, she knew, but the exquisite pastels she'd agonised over for so long last year now felt like they were too drab. Was the world fading already? There were seven missed calls and a bunch of messages from Angie, but she ignored them. She googled house painters and picked one at random. I need to redo my apartment. When can you send someone? (laughs) We're pretty booked up at the moment. I'm willing to pay a bonus to have it done as soon as possible. Everyone's paying extra these days. There was no other option. She played the death card again. The thing is, well, I don't have long to live and I really have to get this done. A pause. You're dying. Mm, I've just been diagnosed. Malignant melanoma. Maybe only eight weeks, they said. I'm... I'm sorry to hear that. They were all so sorry. None as sorry as she was, though. I'm going to get really sick really soon and I can't stand these walls. I'll send someone round in the morning. Imminent death is the gift that keeps giving, she thought. Her phone buzzed. It was Angie again. She'd have to tell her soon. There weren't very many other people to tell. Her mother in Queensland, but she wouldn't care. She'd say she was upset and she'd certainly milk all the sympathy she could get from her friends, but would there be actual tears? There hadn't been tears in all the years since Katie had moved out. They'd hated each other all their lives and nothing would change now. She hadn't known her father and had no siblings, so there was no one to call in that regard. She'd burned too many bridges with friends for any to require calling now. Nothing drastic, but a compulsion to work rather than socialise had seen them drift away. And as for lovers or ex-lovers, there were none of the former, which only left Vu and Michelle. Vu lived in LA and they hadn't spoken for a few years and Michelle was a psycho. That's why they'd split up. No way Katie would let all that insanity back into her life. It had taken long enough to realise just how crazy Michelle actually was, and it had taken even longer to get her to move out. A bit of a pathetic situation when you thought of it. Suppose you had a death and no one to tell. Would you really be dead? She knew she'd be dead. She wasn't a bad person, just someone who preferred her own company and who let things go sometimes rather than addressing them. There were friends she'd had at school and uni she'd really liked being around, but there were too many years between them now to make any form of contact real, even if she played the death card. There just wouldn't be time for a meaningful reconnection. Which left Angie.
She knew Angie relied on her, but she didn't pay well and she was prone to office tantrums. But perhaps today would be the exception. How could you be angry with someone who was terminally ill? Shit, Katie! Why didn't you tell me you were having a test? I didn't want to worry you. Well, well, what am I going to do? I can't be expected to, I mean, I I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to hear what's happened, but... Sentences kept fizzing as Angie neared the end of each one and realised she was blaming Katie for her condition. How are you feeling? Angie asked finally. I can't explain it, Katie told her. Kind of (laughs) liberated, actually. Shock, probably. You're not frightened? Of the pain they warned me about? Yes. Of death itself? Not yet. I think I will be when it comes closer, but... We spend all our lives in denial of it, don't we? Well, if, uh, if there's anything you want me to do. Thanks, Angie. She poured herself a wine and tried to watch the news, but it was too depressing. She surprised herself by dressing up to the nines and had to admit that she looked okay. She found a club and met a girl. She was usually crap at picking up, but found the death card worked a treat. They were still sprawled across the sheets early the next morning when the painter arrived with a bunch of swatches. She left the girl in bed while she explained how bright she wanted the walls and he tried to talk her out of it, but she laughed and asked him where she should deposit the payment. He said he'd be back to start work two days later. She returned to the bedroom and the girl was waiting for her and Katie made love to her like she was a caged tiger, all teeth and claws. When they'd finished, she could see the girl was wondering if there'd be more, but Katie told her she had to go to work. Once the girl had gone, she went to a cafe and ate like a horse. She never usually ate a lot, but the death card had many faces. She considered going for a walk, but went to a bar for a couple of hours instead. She returned home and played her music so loudly it drove the annoying woman in 3B to eventually call the police. They came after an hour and explained that they had to check on her to see if she was all right, as the woman had said on her fourth call that there may be drugs involved. They knew it was probably an excuse to get them to visit, but they had to look into it, didn't they? She played the death card again and told them she'd keep the noise down anyway, and she waited until they left, then really blasted it for about ten minutes. She turned it off after that and wondered what to do. She considered getting smashed again and just partying the rest of her life away until the pain became too bad, but partying had never really been her thing. It'd be too lame to go back to work and serve out the remainder of her days to the god of commerce and Angie's unmerciful extraction of every economic morsel Katie had left in her. She briefly considered committing the rest of her useful life to good deeds, but felt that this would be as lame as working like she was seeking atonement for all her past transgressions and omissions. Not that there'd been many. She was too meek for sin generally. But didn't most people living in 20th century Australia carry some burden of wrongdoing? Even if it was little more than failing to be politically active or not contributing enough to charity. Talk about deathbed conversions. She sat and did some maths. She'd been putting money away for a long time, desperately hoping to somehow enter the Sydney property market and she had a great credit score. She was good with numbers and realised that with her savings and a few loans that she'd never have to repay, she wouldn't need to work again. Katie played another death card, this time by email, and quit her job. 
With nothing to worry about financially for the foreseeable future, which was all she had, she felt the sense of freedom again. But the freedom to do what? She thought about meditation, suicide and travel, but none called to her. She oversaw the painting of her apartment and and was happy with the result. Two days after being diagnosed with terminal cancer, without the need or habit of going to work, she realised that there was nothing she wanted to do. She was free and as bored as hell. She contemplated a hundred different possibilities for her short future, and she knew that she'd be dissatisfied by all of them. The one thing that she didn't consider was falling in love. It was her first appointment at the clinic, and she knew they'd been waiting involved, which meant yet more boredom. She'd never been a great reader, and for some reason, every medical centre she'd ever attended with a TV only ever screened infomercials. Today, the boredom was worse, because somehow she'd written down the wrong time and had arrived an hour early. She didn't have time to waste, and now this had happened. She watched the people in the plastic seats around her, two older women were chatting quietly. Easy to see which one was the patient. She was bald. A man in his 40s, looking decidedly nervous, glanced towards her and then turned away again, like she'd failed some kind of test. Someone was slumped in a corner chair, snoring loudly. What are the odds, Katie wondered, of this motley crew aboard the SS Cancer? Who would survive and who would accompany her on the one-way journey to heaven, hell, reincarnation or bloody nothing. She was scanning New Weekly when the figure in the corner stirred. She stood and stretched and started scratching her belly for all the world as if she was in her bedroom at home. She had her pyjama pants on and a loose t-shirt, no bra. When Katie spoke about it later, she said that she didn't have words for the attraction she felt as she stared, perhaps wide-mouthed, she didn't remember. But in the confusion and turmoil of her situation, this was different. This was a positive in a sea of negative, and it grew within her as she looked at the dark sheen of the woman's skin, the bright green of her eyes and the amazing contour of her body. She knew immediately that in a perverse joke, life had thrust love towards her right at the moment she was committed to moving incredibly quickly away from anywhere with space for love. And for all she knew, the girl she was watching was dying too. At least they'd have that in common. She had to talk to her. But at that moment, she was called to have her scan. She glanced again at the vision of Beauty, who was now gazing out the window. Would she even be here when Katie returned? Katie knew she had one shot. This wasn't some nightclub pickup where failure meant little more than another girl a little further down the bar, or at the very worst, a lonely bed in the morning. This was real, and she had to do it. At any other time in her life, she would have waited, hoping for fate to intervene later, but things had changed, and now she had the power to do this. Her heart was beating stupidly loudly as she approached. The girl turned towards her. Christ. She was even more gorgeous close up. They were now very little more than two metres apart. You're the most beautiful woman I've seen in my life, and I'm dying, 
Katie told her. Can I buy you a drink? She was rewarded with a huge smile. Well, I'm probably dying too, so you better make it a double. And hey, I scrub up better than this when I put the effort in. What's your number? The girl told her. They called Katie's name again, and she played the death card and leaned forward and kissed the girl passionately and intently. Call soon, okay? She said. Katie walked away, wanting the tingle from the pressure of the girl's lips against hers to last forever. The professor looked serious as she came into the room. She put Katie's scans up on the computer and flicked through them. She glanced towards her and shook her head. How are your pain levels? Katie smiled. Actually, not too bad. My hip's still sore, but I haven't felt anything anywhere else yet. Sorry to say you will. It's spread to your pelvis, your lungs and your left shoulder. It's not going to be very nice. And no, she didn't even know how she was going to end the sentence. No treatment. She'd already been told this wasn't an option. Pain relief? There was only so much they could do and that it might eventually become so bad that the only option would be to sedate her entirely. She wondered if she'd have the guts to end it before that. Play the actual death card. The professor was shaking her head again. I wish I had better news for you. It's aggressive. We could dose you up on some chemo, which might slow it up a little bit, but your quality of life would be very poor. My suggestion is radiation treatment for the sites that are getting really bad. It won't stop it, but it'll reduce the pain for a while. We'll start the radiotherapy on the tumour in your hip, seeing as that's the worst. Will it hurt? Katie asked. It probably won't knock you around too much. The professor looked at Katie right in the eyes. Have some fun while you're able. It's only going to get worse. She stood, still watching Katie intently. We have a good team here who'll manage you every step of the way. You'll have the support you need. The girl wasn't in the waiting room when she walked back and Katie hoped desperately that she'd written the right number down. She hadn't even asked her name. She dialed, both exhilarated and terrified. Hi, it's me, and I don't do voicemail, so send an SMS or try again later. Katie texted, I met you in the clinic. You're gorgeous. I want to see you tonight. Even as she stood there signing the forms and preparing for her treatment, she knew she was totally smitten. She was obsessively trying to remember every detail of the girl, how her hair had felt, the outline of her breasts, those bright, bright eyes. She grabbed a coffee, thought briefly about getting something stronger, and was thinking about the girl so hard she almost missed the phone vibrating in her pocket. You're a good kisser, the woman said. Yeah, not so bad yourself, Katie told her. I haven't long. Can we meet now? You have somewhere to be? I meant, I may not have long to live, so yes, I guess I do have somewhere to be sooner or later. The girl arrived looking more stunning than Katie remembered. She wondered if they'd tumble into bed straight away, but this wasn't a nightclub pickup, nor was it the insatiable lust of a suddenly discovered relationship. It was more like diving into a slow marriage. Perhaps it was a slow marriage, she thought. What a shame it would have such a fast ending. They'd come to Katie's apartment. What's your name? Katie asked. Claudine, the woman told her. 
It was the second thing she'd said after going inside, the first being, holy Jesus, this is bright. Do you like it? I bloody love it, the girl said. It's amazing. It's, it's atrocious. It's atrozing, they smiled. So, what do you have? Claudine asked. For a moment, Katie thought she was asking for a drink, but realised before she answered that that was the old world. They were still standing and Katie ushered her towards the lounge. She sat down and Claudine sat against her closely, and Katie automatically put her arms around her. She's read my bloody mind, she thought. It's a malignant melanoma. It was cut out of my armpit six weeks ago, but it's already spread. Metastasizing assholes, Claudine said. My lungs, lymphatic system, now my bones. I don't have a hope. They're treating the one in my hip because it's painful. Radiation, how about you? She asked. Breast. I had a lumpectomy. Want to see? Without waiting for a response, Claudine sat up and lifted her T-shirt. I'd ask you to guess which one, but, you know, the one with the red scar. Doesn't look very different. Looked bloody amazing, actually. Claudine was smiling. I love my breasts, but this one feels like a traitor now. What's your prognosis? Chemo, radio, more tests. They can't say at this stage. They talk optimistically sometimes, but at other times, they bloody whisper to themselves. Oh, I hate the whispers. Claudine put her shirt back on and Katie thought it was like the night falling. She lay back against Katie again. Sorry yours is so bad, Claudine said. Katie shrugged. Yeah, unfortunate, one doctor said. Losing your phone is unfortunate. Losing your life? Anyone to help you? Claudine asked. Katie shook her head. Want me to? I mean, I know you don't know me and to be honest, I'm a crap cook and I'm expecting chemo to knock me around, but I will if you want. I couldn't ask you to do that. She wanted it more than anything, though. She played the death card again. I guess it would only be for a few weeks. Maybe a couple of months at the most. And Claudine surprised her by bursting into tears. And then Katie started crying too. They were the first real tears she'd shed since the diagnosis. And although she'd sometimes felt surprised at their absence, she was now startled by their force and sudden arrival. They were hugging their wet faces together. They stroked hair and held hands and sobbed. After a few minutes, Claudine pulled back. We can't do this, she said. If we only have a little while together, we can't spend it in bloody tears all the time. What should we do? Anything. Pick something you've never done before. I've always wanted to create a bucket list. (laughs) You're funny, aren't you? Well, I I suppose I should. I am not spending the rest of the afternoon with you sitting on a computer deciding on your perfect end-of-life amusements. They never would be perfect, Katie realised, with another surprising rush of tears. They never would be perfect because there would always be things to add, especially now Claudine was here. Pick something at random, Claudine said. Something we can do right now. Would it be lame to say parachuting? (laughs) Okay then. Katie surprised herself by booking a sunset jump and they sped all the way to Appen. Jesus, do you drive like this all the time? Katie explained about the death card. (laughs) You realise you're going to die in a car crash long before cancer gets you, Claudine said, laughing. That night, they lay in bed together, 
arms around each other, Katie kissing Claudine on her face, her hair, anything within reach. The exhilaration from both the skydive and meeting Claudine kept her awake. She didn't mind. There'd be plenty of time to sleep soon enough. Jesus, leaping from a plane and plummeting headlong towards the earth, as well as falling in love just as quickly. Well, if not love, then into something bloody close. What next, she wondered. How else will I squeeze as much life as I can into the time that's left? You reckon this is an irony that we meet now? Claudine asked, turning to her. Irony, bad luck, or the greatest thing ever, because while we may not have many days together, they're going to be the best days. Neither had an appointment until the following Monday, so they lived it up over the weekend. Katie began a collection of all the driving tickets she was given, and Claudine's face was stretched wide from smiling. On a whim, they flew to Cairns for Saturday night and wallowed, there was no other word for it, in a bar on the marina. They soaked up the tropical sun, and Katie didn't apply a drop of SPF 30. A bloody melanoma got me here, and it's too late now. The trip, accommodation and meals, the parachuting and the other treats meant Katie soon maxed out her primary credit card, and she reasoned that while she worked through the other two, she should also apply for some personal loans, so she spent a few hours online. They'd all been approved by Tuesday. I'm going to treat you to the honeymoon before... Well, let's just have the honeymoon. (laughs) You don't want to marry me? Claudine asked. God, I love your eyes, Katie told her. Of course I want to marry you, but I'm going to die soon and I don't want to leave you a widow. Maybe a nice widow will distract me when you're gone, Claudine said. (laughs) You're funny too, but I want you to miss me for at least a couple of days. I'm going to buy you the sexiest black morning lingerie. She realised Claudine had stopped smiling. Hey, hey, it's okay. No, no, it's not. (laughs) I think I really do love you. I'm going to miss the hell out of you. Claudine came to her and they cried and hugged. That night, they found an expensive restaurant and ordered wine Katie would never have considered in her pre-death card life. And after a while, She was pleased to see Claudine giggling again. The next few weeks saw them at karaoke, playing golf, and jet boating around the harbour, activities they'd never try again. Then Claudine's chemo started. The first few days after each dose were okay, but then she'd become bedridden and grow sicker and sicker. She lost her hair and dropped more weight than she should have. She begged Katie to be allowed to stop it so that they could spend more time together, but Katie told her not to be stupid, that she had to live for both of them. All the while, the pain in Katie's hip continued to increase, a reminder that the cancer clock was still ticking. One afternoon between rounds of chemo, Katie played one of the best death cards ever and got them A-reserved tickets for Elton John, despite them having been sold out for months. They were taken backstage and even given a glimpse of Elton who gave them a distant nod and classic death card, a tap on the shoulder from one of his publicists a minute later, as they were given a huge posy of flowers from his dressing room. They sped home, with Claudine tossing petals out the window like confetti. Claudine's next round of chemo was the worst yet, but her indicators were looking good, and the doctors gave her a couple of weeks' break to give her a chance to build up her strength. 
They knew it was probably the last real chance they had to spend quality time together. Katie was thinking about this when she saw her specialist. I'd like to hit you with radiation at a higher level than we normally would, but if we can shrink the tumour, it'll relieve the pain for a while. Will it make me ill? Mm, Maybe you'll feel tired. Some get nauseous, but nothing like chemo. I'll wait a while, if you don't mind, Katie said. I'm planning on doing the city to surf. The death guard allowed her to say what she liked. She could be as brash or as callous as she wanted, and no one ever said anything. The professor looked over her glasses. Come back in when you're ready, she said. Claudine was in bed when Katie returned to the flat, and Katie climbed in beside her. They were both so tired these days, and neither felt much like eating. They slept a lot. Sometimes one would put something on the screen, but they were content to listen to the radio most of the time, if there had to be noise at all. The joke slowed as their energy flagged, but the tenderness increased, and most nights they'd fall asleep holding each other, or at least with their hands clasped. One night, Katie couldn't sleep because of the pain in her hip. You have to go in, Claudine insisted. Katie drove uncharacteristically slowly to the clinic the next morning. She played the death card and jumped the queue, so she was seen by lunchtime. Anything new? she asked. The tech shook her head. Is it much worse? This time, there was a nod. Lying there, with only the technician in the room, Katie was suddenly overwhelmed by anger. How could she have found the woman of her dreams at such a shitty time, so soon before dying? Sure, they'd been having a bucket list of a time, but it was just going too bloody quickly. And now, they'd reached the beginning of the end. She considered slamming her car into a brick wall on the way home, really flooring it and then just turning a hard left into concrete. If it wasn't for Claudine, she would have. But how could she cause her more grief than she'd be feeling soon enough already? Claudine was waiting for her when she emerged from the clinic. I missed you. I missed you too. Katie was nearly out of money, but it didn't matter now. They piled the bills and letters of demand and fines on the kitchen table, and Katie called it her stack of inconsequence. She was able to take on yet another loan based on her past credit history and her current repayment record, although she'd been borrowing from Peter to pay Pauline for months now. This one will see me out, she told Claudine. The radiation had the desired effect, and the pain in her hip subsided. It seemed like it somehow even helped the secondary tumour in her lungs because her breathing grew easier. She couldn't understand how it could have helped, but it had. Claudine prepared for her final round of chemo, with every indication that, with the help of her own upcoming radiation, she was going to recover and Katie began to discard her belongings. She gave most of her clothes away and all her kitchen items. They'd lived on takeaway on the occasions they'd felt hungry for the past few months anyway. She gave most of her furniture away as well, so the flat was bare except for the bedroom and bathroom. She looked with great affection at the overly bright walls. She lay down each night with Claudine and counted these last few hours together as the most special they'd known. And then, she saw she'd put on two kilos. Well, your appetite's been stronger lately. It's only to be expected, Claudine said. 
Since the last radiation treatment, she was feeling undeniably well. At the clinic, they were stunned and checked the machines. They called it spontaneous remission. She'd never heard of it, which was not surprising, as it's extremely rare. All they could tell her was that something, perhaps the radiation treatment, had triggered her body's immune response to attack the mutant cells that had been killing her. In just a few weeks, her tumours had completely disappeared, leaving only tiny scars. <laughs> You've won the freaking cancer lottery, Claudine said. They laughed, they danced, they were elated. For two days, the smiles didn't leave their faces. But on the third day, oh shit, Katie said, looking at the stack of inconsequence, which she realised now carried a whole pile of consequence with it. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Her emotions swung wildly after that, flying between elation she felt at being given a reprieve from certain death and the realisation that she was massively in debt with no income and the real possibility of a prison sentence due to the sheer mass of fines and debt she'd accrued. A week after being told her cancer had gone, she was more depressed than at any time in her life. Claudine found her in the shower, sobbing. <sighs> it's, it's all gone back to where it was, she said. Only, only it's worse now. How am I going to pay it all back? Claudine stroked her back, seemingly not minding that her sleeve was getting wet. You'll work it out, she told her. You always have an answer. Katie looked at Claudine and went to pull her into the shower with her. She hesitated, though, and the moment passed. Claudine turned to the mirror, checked her hair, and laughed at her wet arm. Katie dressed slowly. They lay in bed that night. There's something else, isn't there? Claudine asked. Katie nodded. Are you going to tell me? I don't want to. Okay. Katie realised that this was their first uncomfortable silence. Can I ask a question? Claudine asked. Uh-huh. This morning, in the bathroom, I thought you were going to drag me into the shower. Hmm? Were you? I... I thought of it. It's the kind of thing you do. You wouldn't care if my clothes got soaked. You'd like it. Yeah. So, why didn't you? Because that's not who I am anymore. I'm an illusion to you. I'm the dying girl who's no longer dying. You fell in love with me being impetuous and carefree and wild and I can be none of these things anymore. I'm an unemployed woman with a huge debt that's going to take years to pay off and I'll never run another red light for the rest of my life. The silence hung between them again. I'm starting radiotherapy tomorrow, Claudine said. Will you come with me? I... I should spend some time looking for a job. How could silence be so bloody loud, Katie thought. She hated silence then. Absolutely hated it. In the old days, she would have played the death guard and taken them out clubbing or even just on a midnight drive speeding through Brighton La Sands. The old days were just last week, but already they seemed like years ago. This is how it is now, she thought. We're being crushed by silence and responsibility. And the joy that we felt, that we saw and loved in each other, has gone forever. 
Claudine was stroking her bare back. She rolled over, and Katie could make out her eyes. I'm not the woman you met, Katie said. I know. The woman I met was dying. You're not dying. Katie had a realisation. Actually, I am, she said. I'm just doing it more slowly. An idea had started to germinate, but it was tantalising her, remaining just out of reach, unrecognisable and dancing on her periphery. She wanted it to be still, so that she could examine it for the insight and understanding it held, but it hadn't become real yet. She knew only one thing. Of course, I'll come with you tomorrow, she whispered. There'd be time for job hunting, but this was more important. The realisation she was waiting for took another couple of days to arrive. And when it came, as sometimes these things do, it appeared in the most mundane of situations. At the traffic lights again, where she'd played her first death card. The sun was shining. She was wishing she could ignore the red, just put her foot down and go for it like she had so many times before when she was dying. Choice, she realised. She still had choice. There it was, dangling in front of her. She could choose to run the red. The lights changed then, before she had the chance to do it. But the understanding of choice crystallised and became clear. She reached the hospital and met Claudine. How was it? Well, I'm, I'm not as tired as I expected. Uh, they, they say in a few days' time it's going to knock me around, though. Good. Come on. Where are we going? Katie smiled. She drove Claudine south, out of the city, and surprised her by keeping on going, through the Illawarra and further down the coast. They arrived at Batemans Bay around 8pm and had something to eat. Where are you taking me? What's going on? Claudine asked. God, you're not not dying again, are you? This isn't another death card, is it? Katie reached across the table and took her hand. No, honey. This is a life card. She was rewarded by Claudine smiling her amazing smile and squeezing her palm. She gets it, Katie thought. Of course, she gets it. We only have a short time on the planet. Our lives are blips in the universal scale. It was easy when I was dying to think, hey, I don't have to worry about these consequences. (laughs) Now I do. That shouldn't constrain my joy, my hopes, my desires, and what I want to share with you. It's all just biological poker when you think of it. Claudine smiled. Oh, she has the deepest eyes in the world, Katie thought. And her skin's positively regal. They drove for a few more hours and arrived in Bermagui after midnight. Katie woke Claudine early and took her down to the water. The sun was flaming orange and the colour was reflected on the water which was gold-flecked and full of beauty. You haven't applied for another loan, have you? Claudine whispered. Katie shook her head. Just 
using up the rest of the last one. We're going to move here. Good. It took them five years. Katie found a cafe job, then one in a small accounting firm, and began stacking shelves at night. Claudine finished her treatment, and it took a while for her to recover. Then she completed the final part of her teaching degree and found work, at first not in a school that she liked. They didn't care their jobs were dreary. It was the eventual goal that excited them. They enjoyed sharing their progress, skimping on things when necessary so that they could save more. They celebrated milestones. The day they were no longer in debt. The first thousand in the bank. The day they had enough for a house deposit. The move south was as exciting as it was heartwarming. In time, they had two children. Two daughters. And one of them was me. We lived in rural comfort and wanted for very little. Things we asked for, we received, or we heard long, loving explanations of why we couldn't have them. Occasionally, when we weren't expecting it, they'd play a life card, and we'd be shown something amazing or be taken somewhere special. We grew up with their ethos, that we should work hard, share goals, communicate, celebrate spontaneously, and love. In time, we both left home leaving our middle-aged mums to the cafe they'd bought and later a bed and breakfast. Eventually, Claudine's cancer returned. Katie nursed her until the end and we came and helped, holding her old hands as the life slipped from them. We were all around her bed the day she died. Katie was watching her eyes and Claudine's never left hers except to look on us. But it was Katie they always returned to with great love and devotion. And I saw somehow hope. They were the boldest women I've ever known. That was Anne Burbrook reading Biological Poker. Relativity Studios in Wollongong facilitated the recording. Thanks, Gerardo, Mariana and Kian. You guys are awesome. Please like your movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it. Or even just tell your friends. And come back for more of Biological Poker, season one of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.